The scripture for today's sermon comes from Exodus 20, 8 through 11, and 31, 16, and 17. The word of God speaks to us. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Man, it is so good to be with you guys. I, I got to confess, I feel a little bit insecure standing up to talk with you after seeing Brandon High's mustache. I, I, I don't know that you can call this a mustache after seeing that. It's like there's an entire unreached people group in that thing somewhere. So it's good to be with you, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, like like uh, he said, I'm one of the pastors at Frontline South, and I uh, want to bring greetings from our congregation to yours. Uh, your lead pastor, David Adair, was with us three weeks ago. He served us so well, uh, preaching out there for us. And I have loved, loved this congregation. I, I was able to visit you guys on a Sunday while I was on sabbatical last year. And it was just such a good thing for my soul, for my family. So I want to say thank you to you guys. You don't know how big of a deal it is, what you're doing, the way that you gather in community, the way that you take the Bible seriously, the way that you're like a a faithful presence and a witness in the city of Edmond, a culture where consumerism and self-absorption, just kind of the air that we breathe and the way that you guys are living and engaging and walking out gospel community is so powerful. So blessings to you. I want to say too, if you're here today and you're like, I don't know really where I'm at with all this. I don't know if I believe the words that we're singing or maybe you've got some serious doubts and questions. I just want to say to you, you don't have to believe what we believe. You don't have to even behave or live the way that we behave or live. We just want to invite you in. If I'm wrestling, this is a place where I think is a safe place to wrestle and to ask questions. Any one of these pastors, anybody on this team, they would get you coffee. They would sit with you and process. And uh, we're not afraid of your questions. We don't have all the answers, but we're not afraid to at least sit down with you and process. So we, we just want to say welcome to you. You don't need to like, leave all your doubts and questions at the door. Come in as you are and, and just be here. Sound good? Okay, so we're going to be in a few different places. Exodus 20 is going to be one of them. So let me take a second and pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this congregation. Thank you for these people. I don't assume that I have anything very profound or helpful to say today, but we do want to go to your word together. And we do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would shape us today. Father, we just confess again that there's a, there's a thousand ways this week where we've been told different stories and invited to live different ways. And today, you're holding out an invitation to us. I pray that you would reshape and reform us today. Would you shape us around your word? Shape us around what's true and what's beautiful and what's good. God, we pray today that where we have weariness, where we have overhurried lives, that you would meet us with this gift of rest. 
So come and shape us. We want to live as your people in a unique way. Give us the grace to do that. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. In his fantastic book, The Rest of God, Mark Buchanan, the author, tells the story about his wife's grandmother, a woman by the name of Grandma Alice that he referred to her as. And I found this story so fascinating. So she lived in British Columbia. And in the the late 80s, there was rumors that gold could be found still deep down in the ground or in the riverbeds inside of the small town where she lived. So what happened was all these people started traveling to British Columbia, the small town where she lived, in search of striking it big with gold. And Grandma Alice just thought this was a bunch of nonsense. So one day she's sitting in her backyard and she was doing some work in her garden and she had this really large stone that was in her garden in her backyard. And it was too heavy to lift. She couldn't move it at all. So she just thought, hey, I'm gonna like turn lemonade out of lemons here and make this the centerpiece of my garden. And so it had this beautiful shine to it. Like if the sun hit it right, it had a bit of a glitter to it. So she took some sandpaper, this really special type of sandpaper, and she began to just polish the stone so that she could make make it like a, a major accent in her garden. But something happened as she started to polish the stone. While she was working and polishing, she started to notice some gold dust appear on the stone. And she paused while she was working and she like took her finger that was kind of wet from sweating and working out in the yard, she, she touched the stone and she pulled it up and sure enough, there was gold dust on her finger. So her heart started racing. She's like, oh my goodness, I've got this giant golden rock in my backyard. And she begins to scrub, scrub, scrub like she's trying to get a stain out of clothes. She's working harder and harder and her heart's getting more and more fat, fast with beating. She's so filled with joy. Mark Buchanan describes the rest of the story like this. She caught the virus in one swoop. She understood with perfect instinct what all the time she dismissed as sheer nonsense. Grown men squandering all else, homes and farms, families and reputations, and flinging themselves headlong into reckless escapades, spending their years burrowing beneath tree roots, grubbing through silt beds. But now she had it too. Gold fever. She was going to be rich. And then he goes on to say this. She stopped a moment to wipe her brow, to rest a spell, and that's when she noticed that something was wrong with her wedding ring. The top side was normal, but the underside, the part that nestled in the crease where her finger joined her palm, wasn't. The band there was thin as a cheese slicer wire, thin as a filament, She had nearly sanded her wedding ring clean off. And if you haven't followed what's happening in the story, that rock in her backyard was not actually gold at all. What she was doing with the sandpaper was so strong that it was actually sanding her wedding ring down. And the gold that she was finding on the stone was the gold from her wedding ring. She literally was throwing away something that had value for something that had no value whatsoever. And, and he goes on to say that the first time he heard that story, he laughed. And then every time after that, it, it just made him sad because he's repeated Grandma Alice's mistake again and again in life. And when I read that, it hit me so hard because I've repeated Grandma Alice's same mistake. And here's what I mean. What I mean is that through my hurried, busy way of life, I've often thrown away what ultimately had value for something that ended up being worthless in the end. 
I've taken moments with my kids where they've asked me to play and I've said no because I was too busy. I've missed my wife's heart because I was too preoccupied with my phone. I've not been able to engage God in these spiritual practices that as a church we've been talking about for the last several weeks in this Rhythms of Grace series because God, I can't do those things. I'm too busy right now. I've thrown away what really matters. I've sanded away my wedding band just for something that I thought would have value, but in the end was worthless. Can you relate to that? Or am I the only one? Man, this is such a culture that we live in that's marked with busyness. We have this really interesting relationship with busyness in our society because it's not seen as a potential problem that we might should look out for or even repent of, but it's actually seen as a virtue, isn't it? What's the number one thing that people say when you say, hey, how you doing? I'm good, but... Busy. I'm good, but busy. It's just something that we inherently say as a culture. I mean, uh, for us, busyness is kind of a, a badge of honor. Uh, you, if you met someone and they were like, ah, man, I'm just really bored, to be honest. Like, I just kind of sit around and watch a bunch of shows and look for stuff on my phone. Like, I just, I have no life, really. I'm just really kind of lazy. Like, even if that's really true of you, you're going to go, oh, I'm good, but really busy. Because busy is shorthand for I matter. I'm important. People rely on me. I am someone that people count on. Busy is a sign of virtue. And while hard work is good, and and I don't want you to misunderstand anything that we're going to talk about today, hard work is a gift. It's not a result of the fall. Pastor David preached a great sermon last week on work, so check that out. However, work can become something that in, in, a un, in, a, in a busy, hurried way, we actually slide and slip into overwork and we miss out on what really matters. And busyness starts to seep into our very souls and it actually affects who we are as Christians. Dallas Willard has this to say, and, and this is really bizarre to think about. He says, busy is the greatest enemy of spiritual life. Think about all the enemies of our spiritual life that are out there, the world, the flesh, the devil, all the things that exist in our world. And yet Dallas Willard, this great theologian who passed away a few years ago, he's gonna say, busy is the greatest enemy of spiritual life. Because there's a way that busy and hurried life can so get into your bones and into your soul that some of you hearing even the last few sermons that we've been doing on prayer and Bible reading and work and fasting and solitude and all these other gifts that God has offered to to engage the Christian journey, you're going, I'd love to do that. I just don't have the emotional margin or time. I'm too busy. So today, what we need more than ever before is to recover rest and specifically this idea of Sabbath rest. Maybe you didn't grow up hearing about Sabbath rest. I never, ever heard that phrase, never heard a sermon taught on the Sabbath. And I was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I was there all the time. I never heard a sermon about Sabbath. So here's what we're gonna do today. Instead of just camping out on one text, I wanna give you sort of like a biblical overview of this ancient practice that the people of God have engaged in for thousands of years as a way of forming us around rest. Sound good? So that's where we're headed this morning. Uh, Here's the first thing I want you to see, the Sabbath and creation. If you have your Bible, Genesis chapter one, if not the words are on the screen, the Sabbath and creation. The idea of the Sabbath actually comes in in the very first pages of scripture. If you open up your Bible to page one, you're gonna see this take place. Look at chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. God is busy at work creating things. Now fast forward to the last verse of chapter one. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So chapter one, God is busy at work. He's creating all things. He's bringing order out of chaos. He's infusing the Garden of Eden with significance. God is working. But then there's this unexpected plot twist because we sort of expect God to work. But what happens in chapter two throws us a bit of a curveball. Look at chapter two, verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And notice this word, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he'd done. Verse three, so God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let let that sink in for just a minute. God rested. Yeah, but I'm, I'm really busy and I've got a lot of people that rely on me. God rested. Like the creator of the universe ceased from his labor and took a day to rest. That is unbelievable. Not what I would have expected for the creator of all things to do. Now, the word that's used here in Hebrew for rest is Shabbat. Just try saying Shabbat real fast. Shabbat, super weird, super fun word to say. Uh, But what Shabbat really means, it's where we get the word Sabbath from. And what it means is to cease or to stop from all of your labor. The idea with Shabbat is not that you uh, are exhausted and tired and overwhelmed and you need a break. That's not the idea. The idea with Shabbat or Sabbath rest is that you are pausing to celebrate and to delight in all that you've done. It's that moment when you do a lot of yard work, you clean up your yard, it's looking good, and you kind of wipe your brow, you pause, and you look back on it and you go, that's good, I did something good there. For like three days, it'll look really good, right? It's that moment where you build something or you create something or you draw something or you, you write something or whatever it is that you do. You, you bring something into existence and you pause from it and you, you, you just enjoy. You have delight and celebration in what you have made. That's what God is doing here. He's pausing for a day of delight and a day of celebration. Friends, I don't want you to miss this, that when we talk about the Sabbath, we are primarily talking about a day of delight and a day of celebration. Most of you, if you grew up in an older generation hearing about the Sabbath, it sounded awful, didn't it? It's like, hey, all the stores are shut down and you have to wear a three-piece suit everywhere and you can't smile or laugh because God hates that. And you just have to sit there rigidly and eat a dry chicken dinner on Sundays and be locked in your home and don't have any fun. And then as soon as the Sabbath is over, you can go back to your life. That's how I kind of heard about the Sabbath growing up. But actually, the Sabbath is not that. It's a day where God is pausing to enjoy and to celebrate and to delight. So for me and my family, the the Sabbath day is a day where we do what brings us joy. It's a day where we just celebrate what God has done. It's a day where my phone is put on do not disturb or shoved away in a drawer somewhere. My email is turned off, and I don't care who you are, you cannot get a hold of me. Because if God rested, then I can too. It's a day where I actually don't have any commitments. I don't have a to-do list. I don't set an alarm on my phone and I sleep in as late as I can, but I've got three little kids, so it's never that late. 
And, and it's a day where we just enjoy and we cease from all of our work and our labor. And this is what God intended in this creation narrative is that actually the fabric of our creation would have a six-day work rhythm followed by a one-day rest rhythm. That you and I are not machines meant to work, 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 but we are meant to work for six days and to rest one. And work for six days and to rest one. This is how God designed creation to work. Now, two things about Genesis chapter two that is often easy to miss that I wanna point out real briefly. The first is that God blessed the seventh day. That really matters. God blessed the seventh day. If you carefully read through Genesis one and two, there are only three things that God blesses. He blesses animals and humans and a day. And it's interesting, when he blesses animals and humans, he uses this phrase, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, there's something about the blessing of God that enables animals and humans to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Now think about this. He blesses animals, humans, and a day, meaning that the idea of God blessing a 24-hour period here is God saying there's something about this day that will bless you that will fill you, that will actually allow you to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. This is how God wired everything to work. And you know this intuitively, even if you have your dream job, which very few of us do, but even if you have your dream job, by the end of the week, you're worn out, you're tired, you're exhausted, and you need a day to be recharged, to refill, to allow creativity to infuse you once again. That's how God designed the Sabbath day to work. He blessed it. The second thing to notice is that God made the seventh day holy. It's fascinating to me that the very first time that the word holy shows up in the whole Bible is not related to a garden or a temple or a shrine or a mountain, but to a day, a time period. That in an ancient Near Eastern culture, the only thing that they considered holy were places. You had holy mountains or holy shrines or holy locations where you could go and encounter the God or the gods. And yet the, the Bible offers us a very different narrative that God actually is not to be found in certain places as much as he's to be found in a day set aside, made holy, made other, where you and I get to encounter the very presence of God through the Sabbath. There's a Jewish rabbi by the name of Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he said it this way. He said, the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. The Sabbath is the presence of God in the world, open to the soul of man. God is not in things of space, but in moments of time. And that's a big deal because you and I often are trying to escape our places so that we can go find God. And yet here in this Sabbath day, God can be found in a 24-hour period where he actually wants to offer you this delight and celebration of rest. So this is an invitation that God is giving his people. And what happens when we reject the invitation of this gift? Well, rather than it just sort of like, um, you know, sort of working out for us and we can go about our lives and still be creative people and accomplish things really well, actually what begins to happen when we refuse to rest in this six-day work, one-day rest rhythm that God designed, we're rubbing our hand against the grain of the wood of how God created the world to work, and it actually has effect on our bodies, on our souls, on our relationships, and especially on our spiritual life as it relates to God, that the effects of not slowing down to rest 
are devastating. They lead not only to burnout and depression, but like a fracturing of your very soul. And this is why I think God goes on to not just make it a gift, but a command. That leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is the Sabbath and the Exodus. So fast forward in the story. Now we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. And here's what's happened so far in the story that God creates and then he has his people that are in bondage enslaved in Egypt and he redeems them out of their slavery. He safely brings them across the Red Sea. He brings them to Mount Sinai and it's at Mount Sinai that God hand delivers his law to his people. And I love that this is the order that you've got deliverance first and then the law is given. Notice that order. Growing up in church for me, it was the opposite. It was like, if you do the law well, then God will love you and forgive you. But the story of the Bible, the equation works the other way. He loves you and he forgives you. And it's out of that forgiveness and love that he then hands you his law to form you as his unique people in the world. So the 10 commandments show up, not as like, hey, do this so that you can have deliverance. It's now that you're freed people, here's how freed people live. And one of those 10 commandments is this idea of Sabbath rest. So look at it. It's the fourth commandment. Pick it up in chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work of any kind, you or your son or your daughter, your male servants or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That's kind of like a Hebrew idiom for like, nobody does any work, not your dog, not your Roomba, like everybody shuts down for a day, right? Verse 11, for in six days, the Lord God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the Sabbath, seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I love this. Two things to pull out from the, these few, few verses. The first is that God actually made the Sabbath day as a day for rest. Now imagine, like, that kind of like we read through that and it's not that big of a deal. Imagine being an ex-slave from Egypt and hearing this as one of the commands from Yahweh God. Hey, your, your entire identity has been marked around you being a slave. You working and working and working, backbreaking manual labor. Your only identity, your only value, your only source of who you are as a person is what you can produce and what you can do. And yet God is saying, hey, I've delivered you. You no longer have a Pharaoh. Now you have a father and I'm inviting you to rest. This would have been breathtaking to slaves who had just been grinding out an existence. God is saying, I brought you out of Egypt. Now I want to get Egypt out of your hearts. Rest, my people, rest. This is a gift to slow down. And it's fascinating to me that this is a command because it's sort of like God is commanding his people to celebrate Christmas. Like, can you imagine God's like, hey, just rest. Just, hey, once a year, take a Christmas break. I want you to take a Christmas break. I want you to exchange gifts, invite people you love over. I want you to eat good food. I just want you to enjoy Christmas. That's what God is doing. But he's saying every week, take one day and just rest. There's more real estate spent on this command than any other of the 10 commandments. And that should tell us something about the heart of God. The second thing I want you to see is that the Sabbath is a day for worship. It's not just a day for rest, it's a day for worship. Notice the phrase in Exodus 20, verse 10, <clears throat> it says the seventh day is a Sabbath, what? To the Lord your God. 
In other words, this isn't just like, hey, take a day off and you're busy and I want you to just kind of chill out for a little bit. God is saying, take a day and I want you to actually have this as a Sabbath unto me. This is a day set aside for worship. In other words, Sabbath day is not just a day off. There's a difference between a day off and a Sabbath day. Praise God for days off. But what do you and I do on our day off? We work, just not for our employer, right? Or maybe, you, maybe you've got a real problem and you do still work for your employer on your day off. But for the rest of us, what we do is we get to all the other work that we couldn't get to throughout the week. So we pay bills and we run errands and we do things around the house and we do laundry and chores and we knock out the to-do list. We do all the stuff that we didn't get to in the other six days. That is not Sabbath day. That's a day off and days off are great. But Sabbath is a day where you rest and where you worship. And actually, I want to offer this to you as a grid. I got this from a guy by the name of John Mark Comer. This has been really helpful to my family and I. The Sabbath grid that we send everything through on the Sabbath day is, is this rest and is this worship? And if the answer is not yes to both of these things, then we just don't do it. Is this rest and is this worship? Like sometimes it's like, well, it's sort of rest, but it's kind of work, like I prefer not to. Well, then just don't do it because you've got six days to do the work stuff, this is a day for rest and this is a day for worship. Does that make sense? Sending everything through that grid. And this is such a big deal to God that notice what he says in Exodus 31. Like this is, this shows up again and again. This will just give you one little picture of the heart that God has here. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, I love this line, he rested and was refreshed. Did you know that creator God had a day where he was refreshed? How many of you could like use a day to be refreshed? That's what God is offering you in the Sabbath day. Now, here's the question that we get to when we get to this part of the sermon is like, well, is the Sabbath still a binding command on Christians today? There's people out there called Sabbatarians, strict Sabbatarians, which that just sounds like a disease. It's like, how long have you had that? How long have you, are you okay? Is there medicine for that? Um, but people wonder like, is this something that we have to do now? And, and theologians have different answers. Some will say, no, this is not a binding command on Christians. Interestingly enough, out of the 10 commandments, this is the only one that doesn't show up in the New Testament. That's kind of a big deal. All other 10 show up. This is the only one that doesn't. Other people would say, yeah, Jesus has fulfilled the, this command in his coming, so we don't need to worry about this taking a day to Sabbath rest. Other theologians will say, actually, that's not true. It's still one of the 10 commandments, and the fact that it doesn't show up in the New Testament is merely an argument from silence, and that's not a great argument. Like, nobody else is debating about, well, now that Jesus came, I guess we can still lie and kill people, Right? It's like, it's still a 10 commandment. It kind of matters. It's rooted in the fabric of our creation narrative. It's the way that God intended the world to work. And even more, you have covenantal language in Exodus 31, eternal covenantal language around this idea of the Sabbath. That's kind of a weighty deal. So is it still a binding command or is it not? Well, my pastoral opinion, and this is not a hill I would die on. This is something that I hold really loosely. But my opinion is that I think you can make a really strong case that, yeah, this is still a binding command that God has offered his people to obey. Now, even if you disagree with me there, and that's totally fine, at least you can see the Sabbath as a gift. 
Amen? At least you can see this as God saying, I want you to work six days and rest one. And even if you can't see it as a gift, at least you can see it as wisdom, right? You know that when your body and when your mind and when your soul is busy with activity for days upon days upon days without a break, that wisdom would tell you that's not a good way to live. And I just want to offer this as God's wisdom, six days of work, one day of rest. Like there's no command in the Old Testament that says, thou shalt not drink 47 cups of coffee in a day, but we recognize wisdom would tell us not to do that. There's no command that says, thou shalt sleep more than four hours a night, but we know that it's wise to try to get as much rest as possible. See this, at least if you're not gonna see it as a command, as a gift and as wisdom, amen? Now, here's what's fascinating to me um, is that in the last 75 years, the Sabbath has been wildly neglected by virtually every American Christian in the West. Every Christian in America and in the West for the last 75 years has just sort of neglected the Sabbath. Like it's almost fallen off the radar as a spiritual practice. Why is that? Well, I think one reason why is because it's just un-American. It's just un-American of us to like ever stop, ever slow down. We are masters at work and we are masters at play. We love to go, go, go. And the idea of not being productive for 24 hours just kind of rubs us the wrong way. The second thing that I think has happened is that there's been a lot of bad teaching and misunderstanding about Jesus as it relates to his understanding of the Sabbath. And that leads me to the third and final thing I want you to see, which is the Sabbath and Jesus. So go to Mark chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 2. For Jesus, the Sabbath day was basically a day to get into a lot of trouble. That's what the Sabbath day was. Like, he's constantly getting in trouble on the Sabbath day. Here's just one example of that, Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of his day, were saying to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So you've got Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain fields. They're hungry, so they're picking heads of grain and just snacking. And the religious leaders had such a legalistic perspective of the Sabbath, such a rigid understanding of this day, that to even pluck a head of grain and eat it was to break the Sabbath law. Now, if you carefully read through the Old Testament, there is no law that says, thou shalt not snack on the Sabbath day. There's there's no law that says that. What was happening here is pretty fascinating because the the essential thing over years and years and years that had taken place is that the Pharisees were trying to do the right thing. And in trying to do the right thing, they eventually lost the plot line. And what was intended to be a gift from God became a burdensome task over time. Here's what I mean. How do you define what work is? It's actually sort of difficult, isn't it, to define what work is? Because some things that are work for you are not work for me. For example, there's clear definitions of work, but on the Sabbath day, is it wrong to cook dinner for yourself? Like for some of you, cooking dinner is a lot of work. You hate it. For me, like I I rest while I cook. I love to cook. It's like a restful outlet for me. What about doing the dishes on the Sabbath? What about going to the gym, right? If you were to ask me to go for a run on the Sabbath day, like I just, I want to punch you. I don't want to be... I don't understand you who run. There's things that have been invented since so that we don't have to do that. I, I, I might run if I were being pursued, but that's a big maybe. 
Like, if you were to say, hey, uh, it's the Sabbath, do you want to go for a 100-mile bike ride? Yes, 100% sign me up. But, but there's certain things that are rest for me and certain things that are not rest. Some of you mowing the lawn is restful. I'll never understand that. I just, I don't enjoy it anymore. But do you see what I'm saying? It's hard to define what work is. So the Pharisees, what they did is they, they built a fence around the law. In other words, what they did was, okay, here's the law, don't do any work. But to ensure that we don't break that law, we're going to build a fence around it. And here's what we're going to do. Don't, don't do this type of work. And over time, it became, you can't walk this many feet on the Sabbath. You can't carry this much weight on the Sabbath. You can't do X, Y, Z. You have to cook certain ways on the Sabbath. Still to this day, there are Jewish people who live in a certain distance from the synagogue. Why? Because they don't want to break the Sabbath command of doing work on the Sabbath. So they live a certain feet away from their synagogues. So... The heart was good, but over time it became this burdensome, wearisome task that weighed heavy on the people, and God intended this to be a gift. That's the heavy, legalistic, rigid culture that Jesus found himself in. So notice what Jesus says in response. And he said to them, verse 25, have you never read what David did? I love it when Jesus is like, oh, you've not read your Bible? That's weird. It's weird that you've not done that. Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he also gave it to those who were with him? He's quoting from this obscure story in 1 Samuel 21, and we've actually preached on this. So if you want to find like a whole sermon on Mark 2 or on 1 Samuel, you can find this on our website. But he pulls from this obscure story to make this point. Look at what he says in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The culture of the first century was brimming with legalism, brimming with rigidity on the Sabbath day. And Jesus had to remind them, hey, friends, you were not made for the Sabbath. You were not made for the Sabbath. That's the part of the verse that that culture needed to hear. Now, if Jesus were to enter into our culture today, a stressed out, overly anxious, overly hurried, overly busy culture like ours, what part of the verse do you think Jesus would emphasize with you and I when we have no rules around Sabbath keeping? The Sabbath was made for man. Jesus would look us in the eyes and he would remind us of the first part of that verse. The Sabbath was made for you. I actually made this for you as a gift. I made it for you so that you can have a day to rest and a day to worship, a day to delight, a day to slow down, a day to enjoy my presence in a unique way. Friends, here's my point. We need this spiritual practice now more than ever before. If you and I can't slow down long enough, if we can't actually cease from our labor to open up ourselves fully to the presence of God, to open up ourselves to relationships that matter most, to cultivate a heart that actually has an identity in Christ that's secure apart from what I produce for the world. If we can't do that, we will have nothing beautiful to offer our lost friends and our family and our coworkers that are around us. They need to see a different way of living. And this is the way that God has intended Christians to live. So where do we go from here? Well, I'll just close by giving you a couple of things that I want to invite you into. First, I want to invite you to cultivate a Sabbath heart. Cultivate a Sabbath heart. Mark Buchanan very beautifully, very powerfully says, before we keep a Sabbath day, 
we cultivate a Sabbath heart. And I think that's the issue for me and for a lot of us. It's not the idea of the Sabbath. It's that my heart is, at re- my heart is not at rest. My heart is anxious. And, 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 I, and I'm actually afraid of being quiet. I'm afraid of being still. I'm afraid of slowing down because who knows what's going to bubble up to the surface if I do. Who knows what sort of loneliness? Who knows what sort of weird voices in my head? Who knows what sort of problems or anxieties I'm going to face when I realize that I am not in control and I cease from my work and I rest for a day? See, some of you, like it's stuff that your dad said to you or stuff that your mom did growing up, like weird family of origin stuff that you need to dig into if you're going to cultivate a Sabbath heart because you don't even know how to be still. You're afraid to be quiet. You're afraid to slow down. Why is that? Cultivate a Sabbath heart. Two book recommendations to help you do this. The first, I've quoted from him twice now, Mark Buchanan, uh, his book, The Rest of God. I wept reading this book. It's so beautifully written. It's so powerful. I highly recommend that. If you're wanting like a devotional book on the Sabbath, The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan is for you. The second book I'd recommend is a book by A.J. Swoboda called Subversive Sabbath. If you need a theology of this, if you want to kind of study what's the narrative biblically of the Sabbath, I think that's the book for you. It's a brilliant theological work on the Sabbath day. So practice and cultivate a Sabbath heart. The second thing I want to invite you into is to practice taking a weekly Sabbath. Just practice taking a weekly Sabbath. Every week, work for six days and take a 24-hour period where you practice Sabbath rest. And I use that word practice intentionally because my wife and I have been doing this now every single week. We've may have, we may have missed one or two, but I don't think we have. We've been doing this every single week for around four and a half years now. And I'm not kidding you, it has changed my entire week. It's changed the way I see my job. It's changed the way I relate to my wife and my kids. We practice this, but it is hard. And there are days where it's like, we'll have a Sabbath day and it's like, ah, that wasn't very good. We did a lot of work or we didn't really worship very well or we kind of vegged out watching Netflix or whatever. And and so we're, we're learning and we're working and we're figuring out what really is rest for us and what really is worship. So practice taking a Sabbath day. When? When should you do it? Whenever. It doesn't matter what day. Just pick a day. Monday doesn't matter. For most people, a Friday night to Saturday night's a good idea. That's when my family does it. Or Saturday night to Sunday night. That's a great time as well. Just practice taking a weekly Sabbath. And that leads me to the final thing. Make it a whole day where all you do is rest and worship. It's for you and your family, for you and your roommates, or for you and your friends. You take a day where all you do is rest and worship. So some helpful tips, have a start time and an end time. For, for my family and I, it's like 6 or 6.30 on Friday night to 6 or 6.30 on Saturday night. Prepare and plan well. For, for us, like we, it's hard for us to slow down and rest if our house is in total disarray. So Friday mornings and Friday afternoons, we call it Sabbath prep in the Burkhart house. We're cleaning and we're like, it's no longer chores. We're like, it's Sabbath prep. And they're like, oh, Sabbath prep. You know, it's, that's how my kids talk. Um, so we clean the house, we get organized, we do all the stuff, we knock out the chores and, and, then, and then we plan to rest. We put away our phones. We turn off our emails. We shut off devices. We cook a really good meal. We get out some good drinks. Sometimes we'll have some of our closest friends over. The friends that you want to be around, the friends that fill you up, we'll have them over. We'll cook a meal together. And what my family and I do, do we'll, we'll light two candles. This may be cheesy to you, but it's become really significant to us. We'll light two candles. The first stands for the command to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. 
The second candle is the reminder that we're sending everything through the next 24 hours, hours through the grid of, is this rest and is this worship? And then we'll say a Sabbath blessing together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to be a light to the nations and who gave to us Jesus, our Messiah, the light of the world. We light the candles, we'll read a psalm, my wife will pray, and we party it up for 24 hours. We stay up late, we laugh, we watch a movie together, we sleep in, we just do whatever is fun, whatever brings us joy, whatever truly is worshipful. We just give it a whole day to be fully present with God and each other. I wanna invite you into that gift. Amen? Okay, so I wanna invite you, would you stand with me? I don't want you to lose the significance of what Jesus did in our new creation. You have God who worked hard in creation and Jesus who worked really hard in new creation. On the cross, which this matters, it was a Friday night. Friday night is when the Jewish community kicks off the Sabbath. Friday night, Jesus is hard at work for your salvation and mine, taking our sin upon his shoulders, taking our shame, our guilt, and actually absorbing the justice of God, the punishment that we deserved in our place. And what were the words that Jesus cried out on that Friday night on the cross? It is finished. He did the work. Friends, now there's nothing else that you and I have to do to earn his love, to earn his favor, to earn identity with him. Jesus cried out over us, it is finished. Saturday was the Sabbath, and what did Jesus do? He rested. His body was laid in the tomb, and he rested for 24 hours. And then Sunday came, and he brought about in his resurrection life new creation to you and to me. Friends, Jesus worked for our salvation. He rested, and he ultimately brought new creation to you and to me and to our whole world. This is the story that we're a part of, and one day, When Jesus returns, the author of Hebrews describes that whole event as us entering into his Sabbath rest. You are invited today, if you're a follower of Jesus, to cease from your labor, to cease from your work, not just physically, not just metaphorically, but spiritually, and to experience in Jesus the fullness of the one who cried out, it is finished.